Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello, my name is Dr. Lakshani Mendes, and I'm a research associate working for the National Institute for Health Research at uh, University College London. So today I'm hosting a podcast, um, and it's all about um, how you get a fellowship, which is completely relevant if you're an early career researcher. Um, So I have a very successful panel with me here today for um, (laughs) for early career researchers who've who've done that. It's it's tough out there, but they've all managed to secure fellowships. So I would like to welcome Chris Hardy, Marianne Coleman, Kirsty McAleese and Jack Riversorti. Welcome everybody. Hello. Hey, Hello. Um so maybe before we jump into the topic we can do a quick round table. Um if you want to share a bit about your background, what you do and what fellowship you're on. Okay. Hi, it's uh, Kirsty McAleese. So I am from uh, Newcastle University and I'm a research neuropathologist. Uh, I have a junior fellowship from the Alzheimer's Society. I'm just over one year in and I'm looking at white matter damage in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, my name's Marianne and I'm an orthoptist, but you can call me an optimist if you prefer. <laughs> um, orthoptist literally means straight eyes, so I specialise in um, helping people to use their eyes together as a pair. And that is what my research fellowship focuses on. Um, my fellowship is funded jointly by Fight for Sight, the eye research charity, and also the Royal Society of Medicine, which promotes the re- uh, exchange of research ideas relating to medical research. Um, And my research project is looking at um, how dementia might change the way we see the world because the brain and the eyes work closely together and we don't know that much about how those interactions might change in dementia. Jack? Hi, uh, yeah, I'm Jack Riversorti. I did my PhD in the University of Otago, which is the southernmost university in the world in New Zealand. (laughs) Uh, I then came over here to do a postdoc in Alzheimer's disease and how diet might accelerate Alzheimer's disease. And now I have a BBSRC uh, Discovery Fellowship, which is their junior fellowship um, for the next four years, and I'm researching ageing and inflammation. Chris Hardy. Uh, I'm a postdoc at the Dementia Research Centre at UCL. Um, I'm really interested in the relationship between hearing loss and dementia uh, and in my fellowship, which is funded by uh, Action on Hearing Loss and Dunhill Medical Trust. I'm looking at uh, hearing in two major forms of dementia, Alzheimer's disease and uh, primary progressive aphasia. Brilliant. Okay, well, welcome all. Um, let's get into, you know, all about how you secured these amazing fellowships that you're all on. Um, so maybe we can start off with being like, did you have to apply for many? I, I remember being a PhD student and just applying for like all of the scholarships that were out there. So I'm guessing it's a, it's a similar process, but way more competitive. Yeah, I, I got rejected from five or six, I think, before I got uh, before I got accepted on mine. Um, but I was sort of prepared for that before I started applying, yeah. so it wasn't it was obviously upsetting when you get rejected. <laughs> and but I feel like uh, you sort of build up this resilience, and you have to sort of try to build up this resilience in academia with paper rejections. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, it always hurt when I got rejected, but. It, it didn't sort of deter me from wanting to apply for, for the next one. I, I thought I had an, a nice idea and something I really wanted to do. Um, 
I didn't think it was a matter of time before it was going to be funded, but I sort of thought it was worth trying and keeping on trying. To... See, I was the opposite. I got my first fellowship. Wow. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was as shocked as you. Um, yeah, so I applied first time for the Alzheimer's Society. During that time, I was waiting to hear of the reviews. I applied for the AIUK fellowship, um, but I found out that I had the Alzheimer's Society, so... I kind of don't have any experience on being rejected because thankfully <laughs> I, I got one first time. Um, but uh, yeah, not so with the papers. Yeah, definitely had that sort of rejection yeah. in grants. Yeah. <laughs> so glad you had some rejection but, papers. If you hadn't, I'd be quite worried. Yeah, no, 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 definitely. I know, I'm sorry. But yeah, it, it can happen. It really can happen. But, um, but just lucky, I suppose. But what's the process? So, um, Jack, Marianne, when you when you're sort of preparing, you know, your fellowship applications, what kind of process do you go through to um, make it sure? It can be quite um, down to the wire sometimes mm. with um, applications for any kind of funding. Really, um, I had at least had experience of preparing grants for senior faculty members within my research fellow role at the university before I applied for my fellowship, um, but. When you're applying to a fellowship like the NIHR or something like that, um, having a you know a coherent body of work that can be looked at over a protracted period can be quite important. And because um, there's not a huge amount of research looking at specifically eyesight um, in people with dementia, um, you know, it's all quite new stuff. Um, and so there wasn't there wasn't enough stuff to really put together a you know a three-year program of work because you know if it's something new you don't know whether it's something that is worth doing three years mm -hmm. worth of research on um so uh when um fight for sight announced this one year primer fellowship award um jointly with the royal society of medicine i thought oh actually um i could apply for that and do a exploratory project to look to see whether this is something um that could uh become more research in the future see whether it's actually worth pursuing or not and so um it was the first fellowship that i'd applied for um but i had to wait for the right kind of opportunity to come along to mm. suit the research idea that i had mm. Mm -hmm. i think um for me uh, a research step uh, a, a preparation step that people sometimes uh, forget to think about is actually talking because uh, you don't want to write up 2,000 words, 5,000 yeah. words on a bad idea. And there'll be senior people in your university who are on these panels who know what a good idea and a bad idea is. And there's certain um, unspoken landmines, which are bad ideas that if you include in your fellowship, your fellowship will go into the bin. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they're explicitly stated. ARUK has one where if you use high-dose amyloid mm -hmm. in cell culture, we now know that the doses, the concentrations don't reach that high in the brain, and so putting high dose on cells doesn't make any sense. Mm. And that's a landmine. You'll go in the bin. So write down 10, 15 ideas, which you've got some pile of data for, early, well before the due date, yeah. and then go talk to these senior people, and they'll tell you the good ones, they'll tell you the bad ones, and then you can aim to get more pilot data for the good ideas, mm. which you can then construct a really good application from. But it, it does seem, as, as Marianne said, it does seem to go down to the wire in the end anyway. So no matter how prepared you are, I ended up on the phone to the accountant at 7 p.m. because I didn't know that it required a third approval step, so right. a pre-approval yeah, and at-time yeah. approval. And then, 
and so I had to Facebook stalk her. It was a whole thing, but she ended up approving it. And, uh, and, uh, and the making rest of... good friends with your research finance department oh, totally. is definitely yeah. helpful. Yeah, um, buy them flowers, yeah. boxes wine. of chocolates. Yeah, just well, actually, I think it's more about making sure that you have got everything that they need mm-hmm. to be able to sign you off. Um, mm-hmm. Because one of the things that I found was actually a lot of people just sort of take the research finance department for granted and just kind of do everything super last minute and are just like, oh, you guys work this out. Um, so the more the more of your the more uh, the easier you make it for them to just sign off your bid, mm-hmm. then you know the more likely it is that even when you are sort of phoning them up like four hours before the grant <laughs> deadline, being like, oh my god, please help me, yeah. um, that they will actually be able to do it because you've done everything that they need you to do. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's such a thankless task, I think, sometimes be working in finance and dealing with people like me who are kind of anxious and angry and wanting to <laughs> approve things. But it's I had no idea before I started applying that actually the the amount that you're applying for is is not the amount that that you need, and there's a huge cost to the institution uh, mm-hmm. as well. And so they they need to do a, a job of making sure that they will be able to support you and and cover the overhead costs and things like that if you are successful. So yeah, I think giving finance enough time and early notice of what you're planning to do is, is so important. And that actually goes back to a bit about what you were talking about at the beginning in terms of applying for lots of grants. Mm-hmm. It, it gets easier after yeah. the first one, yeah. and so you do want to apply for a lot of grants because the hard stuff, will um, the hard stuff, the finances, getting your HOD to say this is a great university and you're a great candidate, getting all these letters together. There's so many things that you hadn't thought of, impact mm-hmm. statements yeah. and all this kind of stuff, well beyond science. Yeah. And once you get those documents flowing, then you can start applying for lots of grants with with a lot less effort than the very first grant that you wrote. Yeah. Sometimes even pre-drafting the support letters oh, so yeah. that all they have to do is yeah, just yeah. sign it. Yeah, no, the HOD is not writing anything. You've yeah. got to write it for sure. Yeah. I think I think if we take a step back as well I don't think it's been mentioned that you need to have a sit down with someone and we had to do it at Newcastle where you had to sit down with someone and show them your CV and actually have that one-to-one conversation Mm. are you ready for a fellowship Mm. because I know a few people who have sat down thought they were ready wrote a 5,000 word Mm. grant application spent weeks and then sat down and then they've realized right you don't have first all the publication Right. And I think there's these things that you said, there's these areas that aren't spe- specifically said. So, for example, a lot of the criteria, so you have to re- go through the criteria with a fine tooth comb mm-hmm. with everyone you want to pr- um, apply to. And some of them do say, and there are exceptions, and they do ap- have people who, you know, may not be a leader in the field or, you know, you should have one first paper author, but if you don't, it's okay. You can be fresh out of a PhD. Mm. They are very far and few between. And from my experience, you know, you have to have one, two, three first author papers. If you don't have that, go and get your first author paper mm. before you even think about applying. And, you know, on top of that, it's in, in little things like, you know, public engagement. Do you have a little bit of that under your belt? Do you have a little side project? And do you have a good... Uh, project you know to actually run with I think it's you know the the process which we can talk about is it's very long I think that's the biggest thing people don't understand how long they might took 18 months from start to finish it was a long time and it's very stressful but if you don't have 
enough at the beginning, you're completely going to waste 12 months of your life. Yeah. Mm. So and, you and need to, to sit down and find, it's a mentor, because mm. yeah. I, I have one in, in Newcastle. And just to build on that, um, you don't want to scrape into the junior fellowship because, like, for example, under the BBSRC scheme, there's 12, 10 to 12 junior fellows, and then there's four intermediate fellowships mm. given out. So of those 12 junior fellows, only four are going to get intermediate fellowship. Yeah. So if your CV is only just good enough to get that yeah. junior fellow, then you've got a really tough time during your fellowship to catch up and overtake yeah. those other eight individuals to make yeah. it into the top four. So having a strong CV and a, and, and a good postdoc or, or a really successful PhD is obviously so yeah. important. Definitely. Conferences, presentations, mm. things like that. They, they all seem a little bit at the time, oh, yeah, yeah. But everything in your CV counts, especially if, you, if you're going to change. I've personally stayed in the same field, but if you were going to change into a different field, mm. anything you can have that can just prop up you know, your your CV to say, look, I have experience in this field. It's, it is new. It's part of the development that you have to achieve with a fellowship. But you, you do need a certain level of something on a CV. And I think sometimes people, I don't think they necessarily think a fellowship is an easy route, but I don't think they're prepared for when they actually hear the realities of what is expected in the application. Mm. You know, some of them should have been told to take six months out. Let's improve the CV yeah. a little bit more. Mm. And so is it finding sort of that mentor who can give you yeah. that advice is, is the main I was as ready as anyone. Yeah. And I, I tell the story all the time. I had a idea, everything. I went to see my mentor and he sat me down. He went, there are three boxes you have to tick. And he went, the institution, the institution could had the facilities mm. and everything I needed. Um, there was my track record in dementia. And then there was my, so there was me. And then there was my development. And he went, you don't tick that box. Mm. And I'm like, what do you mean? He went, well, because my project is human tissue based yeah. and I went to venture into the MRI field. And he went, I can do that in three months. He was like, that's not enough development. He was like, you'll be rejected straight away. Mm. Now, this was three months before I was due to apply. Right. I'd already written a project. Yeah. I just had to completely change direction in in one aspect of it. So it was kind of like two thirds of it was ready to go. And he went, right, you need to either do... Uh, mouse models or you need to do cell culture that's where you need to go with this mm. mo- with this idea so I spent the entirety of Christmas locked in an office learning <laughs> cell the basics of cell culture to try and understand how I can use this to build upon my idea and thankfully it worked but if he hadn't told me that I would have gone ahead mm. with my MRI idea which probably wouldn't have been enough mm. Yeah. So you need someone honest. That's what you yeah. need someone. And it's okay. not just about the project. It's about you as a person as well. And uh, all of us as junior or early career researchers are really bad at selling ourselves. Yeah, I think hmm. that's another skill you definitely have to learn. Um, and therefore that mentoring support is mm. so important. I mean, for clinical um, research, um, your research design service at your university, um, if you're in England, can help you with uh, your fellowship application, um, even if it's not for the NIHR, um, if it's for a charity, um, they can still support you to help um, identify which parts of your kind of pitch for you as the person, Mm -hmm. as the right person to do the fellowship project need more work. So I was always told, and it's true actually, up until I apply for a senior fellowship, it's the only time you will ever use the word I and not we, mm-hmm. which is extremely alien to scientists yeah. because yeah. it's hammered. You you are not, you don't work on your own, you are a team. Yeah. 
So I, I got told off that in my interview that I was successful in actually, but one of the interviewers stopped me and said, you keep saying we, we're not funding a team here, we're funding yeah. you as a person, you know, why do you keep saying we? And it, that felt really strange. And yeah, it, felt, it is. It's yeah. It puts a lot of pressure on you directly as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the English specifically struggle with this a little bit more <laughs> yeah. than that, than other places. Well, yeah. that leads on nicely to, um, I mean, obviously, Jack, you've moved countries um, and, you know, there is an argument that uh, for your career to progress in academia, movement is really important. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, there was just a research paper released on this mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was all about it was actually more about the next step about mm-hmm. wh- which fellows made permanent positions yeah. and 80% of the fellows had to move institution mm-hmm. to make a permanent position um, And but I know people that have spent in the same mm-hmm. university so there's always that 20% yeah we've got one on, we've the, got panel. One yeah. on the panel but uh, I do think uh, it appeals to the funding body to show mm-hmm. that you're willing to grow and I think and really, that is an anti-family policy, mm. and I don't, I, I don't agree with mm. it. I think people are trying to build roots, trying to build connections, yeah. and you know, trying to have a family and stuff like that. And I think uh, that's a wee bit of it, it should be put into the past, in my opinion. Mm. Yeah, I, so I've also stayed at UCL actually since my masters, which mm. goes about however many years. Mm. But um, I, th- I think there are obviously huge benefits to moving around, exposing yourself to different ways of thinking, different techniques. Having said that, I think it is important not to think about moving just, just for the sake of moving. Mm. And if you're in somewhere, if you're somewhere really good where you've worked hard to build up a, a good reputation amongst your colleagues, if you have collaborations that, that you've started, um, if you, in my case, I work with a group of quite rare uh, dementias and so actually UCL is one of the few places mm. in the world that I could study them and so wouldn't my research would have to take a drastically different focus if I w- were to move somewhere else. But Kitty, you kind of talk about almost within university moving because you went from human tissue into MRI and cell yeah. culture. Yeah, um, luckily for me we have on the same floor we have people who, who work with that which I don't know if it's um, this whole lack of cross disciplines in universities the problem mm-hmm. but I didn't know a lot of this mm-hmm. until I actually started applying for a fellowship because I yeah. need to find people mm-hmm. who could do this but I'm very similar to Chris so I did my undergraduate PhD postdoc mm-hmm. and now my fellowship at Newcastle mm-hmm. and I really felt a lot of pressure to move mm-hmm. like you can't possibly stay here but I have a brain bank all the facilities I, I work with tissue the facilities for cell culture and MRI all within the same building and I think there was a lot of pressure to move but as long as you can justify why you have to stay and I think on the on the other side though it's if you do choose to stay it's very very important that you have an external collaboration because Mm -hmm. I do agree you learn from different labs so I have a collaboration across the ocean with uh, in California sorry the sea I obviously don't have a a degree (laughs) in in geography Um, So I work with a group in California um, on on, on this research and, you know, I've done a lab placement over there, which was funded by my funded body by the Alzheimer's Society. So I've experienced that and I will go back and work with them with the analysis part. So I think I justified, as you said, Mm -hmm. you know, why why would I leave somewhere where Mm -hmm. I have everything I need and Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to start again? Yeah. 
So it's not always necessarily mm. the best thing for people, and just yeah. be aware of that, and yeah. don't always listen to what people give to tell pressure, you to do. I guess, yeah. as well, because yeah, they can be pressured to do that. Um, and how have each of you found sort of that transition from being, um, you know, a PhD, a graduate student, to becoming a fellow? How you know has anything changed in your approach, maybe, to everything to oh, everything yeah. yeah really really different yeah. yeah it's been a really steep learning curve I'm not mm. gonna lie um I knew when I was applying for it that it was going to be hard work I knew once I got it it was going to be hard work um I had a period of um about seven months between finding out that I got the fellowship and it actually starting um and it, it basically everything was just constant um hard work from that point onwards um and um it, you know even though you know it's hard work you still don't really have any idea how much hard work it actually <laughs> is going to be until you start it. doing it um and obviously uh, again i think you know you're being funded as an individual researcher um in my instance there's about sixty thousand pounds worth of funding riding on the success of my research project mm. Um, that's a lot of pressure for an, any early career researcher, I think, um, which, again, is why making sure that you have that mentoring support available is so important. But there's definitely times when it does get a little bit overwhelming, especially if you're doing something which is quite you know, time sensitive. You've got like a fixed recruitment window and you want to get X many people. But, you know, when you're working with people, um, things never really go quite to plan. So you mm -hmm. have to have all of these contingencies built in. And sometimes even those, you're just pushing them right up as much wiggle room as you gave mm -hmm. yourself. You need all of that and then some more. Yeah. Um, so I think um, it's one thing writing and pitching a project and it's another thing actually doing it. Yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> I think the other thing is uh, uh, a mentor of mine, Dr. Alison May, that actually put this up and she was like, this is a pie chart of what you do as a PhD student. And it's like 90% blue and that's just work in the lab and then 10% yeah. outreach or something and writing. And then as, as, as you progress through your career, your pie gets chopped up into thousands upon thousands of yeah. bits. And, and also they demand the pie gets bigger. So you've got more <laughs> hours in the day than, than there are in the day. But there's so many more facets to it. It is not just grinding out in the lab. There's... There's career development, professional development, and there's networking. Sometimes you might be taking on students and you're managing mm -hmm. students and student projects, and that's ridiculous. Sometimes you take on some teaching, um, and you, your pie just gets divided up. And you have to – for me, it took a long time – because every time I switch subject I, uh, during the day, if I go from one thing yeah. to another, I'd have to wind up and build up speed. And now I'm learning you can't do that. You have to be able to switch subjects and start writing. Or you, you have know. to get better at saying no. Yeah. Um, yeah, once, once I found out that I got my fellowship, I turned around to um, the people in the department that I was doing ad hoc teaching for. I'm on a research-only contract, so technically mm. speaking, I don't have to do teaching. But obviously, for your own development, it's good to do yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but I just turned around and said to them, I can't take any master's students. I can't do any um, uh, on-campus teaching um, because I need to make sure that this project is successful, which means I need to devote the amount of time that I've said I will to doing the project. Um, and it can be quite difficult to do that because, you know, as you as you go through, people start to rely on you for that kind of support. And then you turn around and say, oh, no, sorry, I can't do that. And you feel a bit bad about it, but you kind of have to for your own yeah. sanity, really. Yeah, I still haven't learned that one. I mean, I did just jump on a train to do a podcast in yes. London. This is the only <laughs> time I can work. There's no one coming in the office. 
But mm. I don't know about you, but I, w- one of the massive positives is that now I feel ownership of everything I do, mm. which is, it's really, it's really nice. And it fe- it makes you feel really good about yourself mm. that, you know, this is work. You get the full credit for it, to, well, mostly. <laughs> but at the same time, there's the flip side of that because I feel the pressure that I have to deliver now. And that was something I never really felt as strongly as even a postdoc. Mm. Because even if I completely screwed up, it wasn't my name on the grant. I would just, you know, go to my supervisor. Now I'm acutely aware that I have a huge Mm. time pressure and there's already delays and, you know, I've got contingency plans, but I'm already planning, you know, months and months ahead about how am I going to do this and that and get this, do this problem and... And it's the same with all of the other, you know, like doing uh, the extra things such as teaching. I've had to say no to a lot of them, but it only you only learn to say no when you reach breaking point. Mm-hmm. And we had, um, I don't know if anyone was at the ECR day, if um, the AIUK uh, conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in Harrogate. So we had um, a mental health part on there from the pressure that postdocs and, mm-hmm. and early fellows are feeling. And it, sadly, we are pushed to that breaking point, and it's mm. only when you reach that point that you realise I need to say no. Mm. So it, it it's good and it's bad, but it's all a learning curve. Because for fellowship applications, you're always encouraged to put in the most ambitious project that you can manage. Yeah. But as part of that, I think to an extent, you do end up, however intentionally or unintentionally, biting it off a bit more than you can chew. Yeah. And it, it's a yeah. bit of a single swim thing. Like you know, you've said you're going to do it, so you're going to have to somehow. But um. You, you do end up you do end up thinking oh gosh you know if I just scaled this back a little bit then yeah. I might have been able to manage it a little bit better but then if you had scaled it back a little bit would it have gotten funded there's yeah. always that question mm-hmm. hanging over it really I think as long as you keep um, in contact with your funding body I mean with, with annual reports and things and yeah. I think honesty as long as you tell them you know we're struggling on this part but we'll deliver on this I think it's about communication as well because yeah. Yeah. You don't bottle things up. You've yeah. got to say, you know, this area is definitely, and things have struggling. to change sometimes in, in science. Right, something might not work, and you might want to go down a different route. And mm. I think, as, as that's right, as long as you are justifying that and to, to the funder and letting them know what you're doing, I, I, I can't see many people having a massive problem with yeah. that. I basically refuted my entire hypothesis within three months and it was quite freeing. It meant I could kind of go off in any direction, but I chatted to my funders and they said, you know, look, we're, this is literally what my mentor said. We sent you out to hunt a buffalo. If you come back with a lion, that's all right too. So, so that was a good... I don't know if we need trophy hunting as our example. So. Well, I was just going to say about, about the... I completely agree with you, Kirsty, about the, the responsibility that, that you feel as, as a... And I'm a relatively junior um, postdoc compared to all of you, I think. But um, that that responsibility about this is money that is is funding me and, and my salary, and this is money that people might have raised doing marathons or you know doing mm. all of the, all of these amazing things, and just wanting to make something good come of of the work that I'm doing to sort of pay back the faith that people have, have put in me. Mm. Through, through yeah, with charity funded PhDs, I think there's definitely yeah. that additional yeah. aspect to yeah. it. And there's probably, you know, that pressure is just going to, we're going to have to learn to manage it because it's going to get worse because not only exactly. now is it going to be multiple grants once we're, once we're tenure yeah. and PIs, it's going to be, that's going to be our postdocs yeah. who are looking to us to keep them employed yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. So that's, I we think it's part of the job. Hard, I, I mean, I like to see, it, what is it, somewhat, the analogy that we use in the office is it's, 
you know, we're, we're in we're PIs on training wheels. Yeah. Mm. So I don't think it's going to be a huge, massive, you know, you'll never work in science again if something goes wrong or we fail. We're never going to fail. We're always going to have, you know, output from mm. our fellow. I mean, if we don't have output in three years, then there is a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether or not it is directly yeah. what you expected it to be yeah. with that niche paper, etc. But, <laughs> you know, we've got to cut ourselves a little bit of slack as well. Mm. And everything we learn goes towards our senior fellowship mm. and we won't make the same mistakes again. Because the point of a fellowship is development. Yeah, mm. the, exactly. the The project is just the way in which you develop yourself and your skills as a researcher because, um, you know, you finish your PhD and you've got, you know, you've got your research skills to be able to design and run a research project, maybe several. Um, but the learning doesn't stop there. Mm, okay. And so a fellowship is just kind of like the next stage of that learning journey in a way, because that's your first step towards becoming an independent researcher. And you are still going to make mistakes because at the end of the day, you can only know so much. Um, and the being able to make those mistakes but have the mentorship and the support to be able to deal with that and to continue um is part of that process brilliant so um we're gonna have to start wrapping up our podcast soon but before we do that um you know you've all been brilliant and we've talked we touch on these points really good advice um is there any other tips that you can share with our listeners just in terms of you know getting to that next stage, applying for those fellowships. So obviously we talked about the importance of getting um, good support, getting a you know mentor who can look up, look over your work. And well, first of all, tell you if you're ready to apply for that fellowship and then kind of support you in writing that up. Anything else that anybody wants time. to share? Yeah. You have to give yourself enough time to do it. You have to also have, you have to start planning and doing these things a lot further in advance than you think because you have to plan for if you do get it if you don't get it what are you going to do do you have bridge funding in place um so speak to your supervisor about that and a really good tip i was given by selena ray mm-hmm. was um always have a backup plan or a contingency plan in your application so if a if ama fails yeah. are the rest of your abcs dependent on that yeah because then that won't be funded so be very, very clever about if half of the experiments fail, you're still going to get two lots of data. Mm. So they have to be mixed, but also can stand alone. Yeah. I remember going to a talk as a PhD student in which the, the, was talking about how to get grant funding. And they said you really need 12 months to time timeline to, to apply. And I remember laughing and thinking, of course, you don't need 12 months. <laughs> and actually, that, that is, that's true. I think 12 months as a minimum is, is probably what 18. you... Yeah. Well, that was 18 from appli- from starting the application to finding out the day that I had one. Yeah. Right, mm. yeah. So yeah. it was a long th- time. That's not full-time, it's in the background, you sure. know. Yeah, yeah full-time ta- full it was about, yeah. I think it took me about three and a half months to write. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, and I really but, like the idea, I think one of you had about saying, not writing 5,000 words and mm. taking that to your head yeah. of department, actually giving them a, a, a summary, a, you know, a, a page-long synthesis of what you plan to do because mm. that's the point at which they can make real changes. And yeah. One of the mistakes I made with one of my failed applications was I gave it to my head of department, this really polished thing that I've spent hours, mm. days, weeks, months, you know, sitting over making it perfect. And then his, his feedback was actually you should really change a lot, a lot of this. And it was, it was almost too late at that point to make those changes mm. before before the deadline. Whereas if I'd taken kind of the, the bones of it to him mm. earlier on, I could have done something with that feedback and mm. that application might not have failed. Although I probably would have done. But and it to might follow not. up on that, um, 
I think, talk to people. Like you can never talk to too many people about your research idea. I know there's a lot of stuff about, you know, scooping and people being a bit worried about sharing their ideas in case somebody else does something with it. But at the end of the day, um, all of the best research ideas need a bit of brewing and stewing. And that can take some time, but it's often the input from other people um you know talking to colleagues talking to um people with dementia um talking to friends and family members basically the more you talk about your idea the more you own it my my tip would be specifically about writing is um there's this principle called cognitive ease and it's the idea that the easier it is to understand something the more people think it's true and so you actually have to boil your ideas down. You've got to remember you're the absolute expert in that. Um, and so you need to boil your ideas down and explain it to a panel that could be MRI experts, mm. cell biologists, you know, that, that could be purely protein experts, mm. and you're trying to explain an animal model. So you need to boil your ideas down as simple as possible and have good figures. I'm really picky yeah. when it comes to figures. Yeah. Make chart. sure that a, a good Gantt chart and good figures. Everybody told me to put them in. Yeah. And I kind of reckon start with the Gantt chart. Yeah. It really puts yeah. it in your mind how you're going to structure your research. So I start with my Gantt chart, which is basically a timeline of your yeah. research that overlaps because apparently you can do 10 things at once. So all yeah. the bars overlap on your Gantt chart. It may uh, not be the truth, but it, but it, it does help frame it yeah. in your mind. Wait yeah. on a minute. If I want to do a two-year animal study, I should probably start that right at the beginning, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, and uh, power calculations. Oh, yeah. That's really Always, important. never, yeah. ever, ever apply without them in yeah. because mm. that is a massive pet peeve of the board, of yeah. the peer reviews. That's yeah. a landmine. You've yeah, got to talk that's to a landmine. Yeah, yeah, you've got to talk to a statistician. <laughs> I'd sure. like to present a slightly uh, contrasting alternative to Ooh, that. If, it's, um, if it is a piece of research where there hasn't been enough done in that area previously to be able to do a power calculation, then you can instead talk about things in terms of um, a maximum sample size. So for a clinical research study like the one that I did, um, my grant application did not include a target sample size, like a minimum sample size. What I did instead was I calculated the number of people that I could feasibly see (laughs) within the recruitment (laughs) period that (laughs) I had allowed myself um, if somebody locked me in a clinic room for like eight hours. And then that was basically how I worked out how many people I could potentially recruit. Yeah, there are physical limitations, but if you don't have pilot data, you can still do a power calculation. Yeah. So it's a basic scientist out there, you can, if, you, if, there, if there is no limit to the number of animals you have or the number of cells you've got, you can still do a power calculation without pilot data using standardized effect sizes. They're called Cohen's Ds <laughs> and whatnot. So uh, make sure you talk to a statistician. But I acknowledge totally if you've got a physical maximum number of people you can see, then yeah. that's all they can expect from you, really. Okay, well, thank you all for being here today. Talk um, us through, you know, what we need to do to become successful fellows. Um, so I'd like to thank our panellists, Chris, Kirsty, Marianne and Jack. Um And listeners, you can visit our website to look at the profiles of all our panellists and post any questions in our comments. I'm going to say, I think, are you all on Twitter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Are you you happy to engage with our listeners on there? Of course. Of course, I'm desperate for (laughs) (laughs) Great. If we could just go around and share all your Twitter handles. Okay. So I'm Kirsty at Kirsty K-E-M. I'm at M-P or Foptics. I'm um, at Mia 
underscore conjecture. And I'm at CJD Hardy. Great. Oh, you win the award. <laughs> Best Twitter handle. <laughs> um, so, yeah, feel free to post your, um, uh, to engage with our panellists and post your comments in our forum. Uh, you can follow us on um, at dem underscore researcher or use the hashtag ECR Dementia. We're also always looking for people to write blogs for us. So if you have any pro tips on um, how to secure a uh, fellowship um, please get in touch and blog for us um, and finally just remember to subscribe to this podcast we're on soundcloud itunes and spotify um, so please share and um, post your review thanks for listening this was a podcast brought to you by dementia researcher everything you need in one place register today at dementia researcher.nihr.ac.uk